Amen. Amen. Good morning, Strong Tower. He is risen. Amen. Amen. He is risen indeed. Well, it's good to see everyone this morning as we celebrate the resurrection. Amen. We're glad you could be with us this morning. If it's your first time and you're a guest, we want to welcome you again, just that you could join us today as we celebrate together. If you want to grab your Bibles or follow along with me on the screen behind me, we're going to be in John chapter 11 today. John chapter 11. Some of Jesus' most famous words here having to do with the resurrection. We're going to look at verses 17 through 27. Verses 17 through 27. Hear the reading of God's word. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Amen. Amen. I want to tag our text today, the pressing question, the pressing question. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you. For your word, your word that is true, that is sharper than any two-edged sword, that pierces even to our very hearts. And God, you pierce our hearts with your word, not to bring death, but to bring life. You do surgery on us to revive us where there is death, where there is sin, where there is sickness. And so God, we pray today on Resurrection Sunday that you would raise us up wherever we are experiencing death, the, the pain of sin and misery in this life, God, may you work by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word to change us, to bring life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, I think it was about five years ago, I, I saw a YouTube video that kind of surprised me a little bit. This lady on YouTube, she was, uh, she was doing an experiment and her question that she wanted to experiment was, could you bust a watermelon using nothing but rubber bands? And I, I don't know how you come up with this idea or where, you know, what this is from, but that, that was her question. And so she decided she'd get this big watermelon. It was, it was huge. I mean, it was like this big. And she put it on a table next to a pile of rubber bands and she went to work. She started to you know, put first rubber band on, second rubber band on, and then the video kind of speeds up, and then it, all of a sudden you see like hundreds of rubber bands. And you could tell in the beginning, when she started adding them, it wasn't doing much. Like you couldn't see any visible consequences of the first couple rubber bands. 
But then as they kept piling on and then you get to hundreds of rubber bands, you start to see the watermelon collapsing. Like it's, it's bending in the middle. And then she starts to slow down her pace because she's getting nervous that the next rubber band might be the one that busts it. And so each one, she's very careful. She's kind of backing away as she puts it on. And the very last one, she puts it on, and sure enough, it explodes everywhere, right? The fruit is flying all over the place. She ducks for cover, and she is shocked just as much as me watching the video. It actually worked. I, I didn't think it could happen. I, think, I thought you'd have to like drop it from a high place or hit it with a sledgehammer, but no, you can actually break a, rub, or break a watermelon with rubber bands. It was death by rubber bands. And, and sometimes you feel that way in life, right? It doesn't have to be a sledgehammer. You don't have to fall from a high place. It, it might just be a couple rubber bands. It might just be these little small things that, that get stuck in your life, that, that put pressure on you, that, you know, it, it could be things like, you know, your kids are acting up at school, and so you're getting phone calls, or the, the debt is piling up from your student loans, or, or maybe you're struggling to figure out what to do in your marriage because you kind of hit this hard spot and you just can't seem to get past it. I don't know what it is, but usually it's all these things that come together. I mean, for some of us, it might be a sledgehammer. It might be this major crisis that you're going through. But for others, it's, it's all the little things, the dozens and dozens of things that just seem to crush you. And then the pain comes and, and you feel all this hurt and this loss and difficulty because of the pressure. And we live in this world of pressure and pain, do we not? I mean, we live in this world where it ranges from a rock in your shoe that's just annoying to you're living life on the margins of society. And nothing seems to go your way. Nothing seems to work. It all seems to be against you. And so because of that, this, this wide spectrum of pain, in a strange way, pain actually binds us together. Because no matter who you are, you, you, know, you could have a lot of money, you could have a lot of education, you could have the right connections, but you can't avoid pain. You can't avoid it through wisdom or exercise or enough you know, uh, in your checking account. You can't avoid pain. It will happen. And so the question is, how do we deal with it? What do we do with the pain? How do we have hope in the midst of all the hurt we experience, whether it's the sledgehammer or it's the rubber bands? And that's what I want to look at this morning. It's, it's this pressing question. How, how does the gospel give us hope in our pain? And so first I want to look at this uh, question of the pain of death, the pain of death. If you're taking notes, that's our first point. And we're going to enter into the scene here at verse 17, what's happening in this scene with Jesus. Look at what it says. It says, Now when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and or Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you don't understand who Lazarus is, he was one of Jesus' friends. Jesus had a very dear, close relationship with Lazarus. And Lazarus one day gets sick, and then all of a sudden, just a few days later, he's gone. 
I mean, it's this unexpected tragedy that all of a sudden comes upon this whole family, this whole community, and you can tell how tragic it is in the response that everyone had. I mean, Lazarus was probably this young guy who had life ahead of him. He had, he had dreams and aspirations and passions and gifts that he wanted to live out, and, and so much was ahead of him. So many conversations that he didn't get to have. So many experiences that he didn't get to enjoy. All these things are, are rushing in as they're experiencing this together. And so Jesus goes to see his friend Lazarus and their family. And when he arrives in Bethany, the Bible tells us that Lazarus had already been dead four days. And his body was beginning to decompose. It smelled like death. Death was settling in. And as Lazarus, is, his body is there and everyone's surrounded around him, obviously you can imagine Mary and Martha, his sisters, are, are full of pain and hurt. I mean, it's everything that they can do to just hold it together as they're experiencing all that they feel, right? I mean, if you've ever lost somebody close to you, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to have the unexpected grief just fill you. And so the whole community comes around to try to comfort and console them because they know this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Lazarus should be alive. Lazarus was snatched from his future. He, he shouldn't have been taken out with this sickness. And so they weep. The whole community is weeping with them. And then Jesus shows up and he enters right into that pain. And he speaks to Martha first, actually, but we'll come back to Martha in a second. Uh, I want to look first at how he responds to Mary, because I think it really does just set the whole scene of how Jesus responds in this situation. And so Mary comes to Jesus. When, when she sees Jesus, she falls at her feet and she begins to weep uncontrollably right in front of him. She just loses it. And she says this to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, do you hear that? Just the pain in those words. And Jesus, when he sees this dear woman, this friend of his grieving, the Bible says that he begins to lose it. I mean, he was broken. It, it says in verse 33 that he was deeply moved. The word literally in Greek means something more like anger or, or furious. You know, you're, you're just so sad, you're, you're angry. Have you ever been like that before? You don't know how to control the emotion. It just comes up as furious anger. And then in verse 35, the, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. The uncontrollable sadness and anger that filled Jesus comes out as he weeps. Jesus weeps over the pain of our sin and death. See, some of you, you need to hear that this morning. Before we move forward, you need to hear that Jesus enters into your pain, whatever it is, and he weeps. He weeps. This God that we celebrate today, he, he enters in not, not to fix you first, but just to be with you and feel with you, right? Jesus gets just as angry as you get. Jesus gets just as sad as you get. He, he grieves just like you. In fact, I would say he grieves even more than you do. Because here is a perfect, sinless human being who, who knows how to handle his emotions flawlessly. And he grieves as he enters into whatever our pain may be. 
right? And some of us, we, we've been through really difficult times, and often our greatest objection to faith isn't some kind of logical argument that we struggle with, but it's a painful experience. It's an experience of injustice. It's an experience of a broken marriage. It's an experience of a lost loved one. It's, it's things that, that happen to you, and you say, why me? Why now? Why, why this? Why, God? And in the midst of all the pain, whether there's answers or there's not answers, Jesus enters right into that pain, and he weeps. He weeps. Maybe the death that you're walking through is a broken relationship. It's this relationship that you thought had uh, potential, and, and you were dreaming about a life together. Maybe it was a friend or, or uh, someone you were engaged to, whatever it might be, and that relationship ended when, when you didn't expect it to end, and now you're, you're alone, and you're wondering, what, what's the future? You're wondering, I don't know how I can make it. Is anyone going to love me? Am I going to be alone my whole life? How, how is this going to work? And, and you have more questions for God than he's given you answers. I want, I want you to hear this. He weeps with you. He weeps with you. Whatever that may be, it might be a broken relationship with a, with a kid or a coworker or a friend. Whatever that hurt is, he comes into it and he weeps. But sometimes it's not just a broken relationship, like, you know, things that have happened outside of us. It's, it's things in our life, right? It's things that have, have happened from us. It's our own personal failures. And, and sometimes we've messed up so bad, we, we shock ourselves. We didn't think we could get that far. We didn't think that we would end up in this place. And we had this vision for our life that we thought I would be somewhere by now. And I thought I would do this and I would do that. And then sin got a hold of your life. And it took you to places that you never thought you'd go. It put you down a path that you couldn't turn around quick enough. And, and now things are broken beyond repair in your own strength. And you're crying out, why? Why? I want you to hear, Jesus enters into that pain. And he weeps. He weeps. This is the, the incredible mercy of God, where, where you step back and you say, could God ever love somebody like me? Could God ever show mercy and grace to someone like me? Could God ever do something in my life? And the answer is absolutely yes. And before he does it, he enters into your life and he weeps. He's with you and he weeps with hope because there's a promise. And this is the second point that we see here as he interacts with Martha. There's this promise of life. Look at Martha's response in verse 21. It's very similar to Mary's, but look at the difference. Verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You can hear the tension of faith happening in Martha's heart, right? You can hear that Martha is struggling because she has seen God do things in Jesus, right? She's been around long enough that she's been following Jesus. She's seen Jesus turn water into wine. She's seen Jesus walk on the water. She's seen Jesus feed the 5,000, right? She's seen Jesus heal the paralytic, all these things that he's done. She's seen this incredible work happening through Jesus. And so in a sense, she knows that Jesus could do it, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He, he could have done it. He had all the power, all the ability, and yet he still didn't do it. 
And so Martha, you can, you can hear this trace of disappointment in her words. I know you could have, but you didn't. And so Jesus hears this, and he, he tries to encourage her struggling faith in verse 23. Look at what he says. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, this is, this is fascinating because Martha, you know, she's a good uh, Jewish religious girl. She grew up in the church, in the synagogue, singing the songs, reading the prayers, all these things. She, she was around the faith. She, she knew the words and she had memorized scripture. And so many scholars believe that this is actually her quoting something that was kind of a, a catechism question. It was something that she had memorized. She knew that this is what you believe and this is the right answer. And she had heard all the right things. And so she, as soon as she hears the problem, she knows the answer. But what happens is you realize it hasn't gone from her head down to her heart. It was still just words out there that she knew. She knew about them, but she didn't really believe them. See, we're all familiar probably with the phenomenon of parrots speaking human languages. Maybe you've, you've seen a parrot or heard a parrot speak, and, and maybe you haven't heard of elephants doing the same thing. But apparently it's happened. In 2012, it's been confirmed that there's an elephant by the name of Koshik. And Koshik learned unintentionally, no training, in how to speak Korean. And it's, it's been confirmed this, this elephant was being trained by Korean trainers who were speaking Korean around him the whole day or, or all of his days as he's training. And so uh, he hears all these words kind of around him. And somehow he figured out how to put his trunk into his mouth and kind of move his jaw just the right way to make the right sound. And he actually developed these, these like, you know, small words, this small vocabulary. This is true. You can look it up. And the words like sit down, hello, good job, uh, and of course, no, right? All the things that he hears all the time. But of course, Koshik is like every other elephant you've ever seen or heard of. He's not human. So he doesn't know what you're actually saying. He, he doesn't know what he's even saying. He's just creating sounds with his mouth. He's just putting impersonal words out there into the world, and he doesn't understand what they actually mean or what they mean for him. It's, it's just words in the air that he's imitating. And this is what's happening with Martha. Martha is imitating words that she had been around. She had been around the people of God. She had been around and heard all the sayings. She knew all the right words to, to reproduce and to mimic, but it didn't actually come from her heart. And so Jesus, he takes her impersonal words, her impersonal answer, and he makes it personal in verse 25. Look at what he says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've heard about the resurrection, you know the right answers, you know how to say it, how to repeat after me, but listen, I'm right here. I am the resurrection. I am the life, the one that you've been memorizing things about, the one you've been studying, the one you've heard about. I am him. I am right here in front of you. It's not some theory. It's me. It's me in the flesh. And then Jesus 
to prove his point to her that he is who he said he is, he turns to her brother Lazarus, who's in the grave, been in the grave for four days, which is long enough for them to officially declare he's dead. Like legally, Lazarus was dead. And then Jesus walks over just like God in the first chapter of Genesis and with the power of his words simply says, rise up, get out. And with just those words, Lazarus, like the stars that were formed in the heavens, obeys the words of Jesus and stands up. I mean, Lazarus is alive, but even more important than that, Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so he comes to our pain, not just to weep, but he comes to our pain with the promise of life, this promise of hope. So you might be new to the Bible today and and you might be asking questions like, well, how in the world did, did we get into this mess and all this pain and suffering? And I want to tell you, it's, it's just one simple thing. It's sin. It's sin because death is not natural. Death is common, but it's not natural. This is not the way God designed it to be. Death happened because sin entered into the world. Death happened because Adam and Eve, our parents, they, they entered into sin, rebelled against God, and where there was no sin and no death and no worry, no anxiety, no fear, all these things, now it enters in. And this sin and this death now taints everything in all creation. And so we, as the fallen people who come after an Adam and Eve, we, we feel the wages of sin is death. It's what we're owed. It's what we experience. So every tear, every heart, every broken heart, every addiction, every death, sin is at the root. And Jesus, when he comes to deal with sin and death, he does it in the most surprising of ways, through death. He does it by death itself because Jesus knew that the only way he could defeat death was to go through it and to come out victorious. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In other words, Jesus is saying, I came on purpose to die. This is the only way that we could do it. This is the only way I could save humanity is if I came to give my life in death itself. And so he died to defeat death. He carried that cross up Calvary's hill. Those Roman soldiers laid his body across the wooden beams as they nailed his hands and feet in place and they lifted him up for all the world to see and darkness became heavy as Jesus breathed his last. And Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. And what Jesus is saying is, I know what it's like to enter into the pain of sin and death because I went to hell for you. I went to the pains of hell on the cross. But listen, we know the end of the story, don't we? Early that Sunday morning, Jesus got up with all power in his hands. He got up. He got up out of the grave. Death couldn't hold him down. The grave couldn't contain him. Sin couldn't beat him. There's hope for our hurt because he is alive. He's alive. He can bring life to the deadest of people. You might feel like Lazarus, like sin and death are just overwhelming me in my life. And Jesus speaks to you in your sin and misery. And he says, get up, rise up and walk. Because whatever you're going through, whatever, whatever pain, whatever difficulty, whatever sin, Jesus' resurrection power is greater. His life-giving power knows no limits. 
The hardest of hearts are softened. The, the weakest of spirits are lifted. The darkest of nights come into his light. And so Jesus enters in. He weeps in the pain. He gives a promise. But the promise, this promise of life, has a pressing question. And this is our last point I'll close with. The pressing question. Jesus challenges Martha with a question in verse 26. Look at what he says. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I mean, his question is, is simple, but it's, it's seismic. This is the kind of question that transforms everything. This is the kind of question that, that Jesus has already clarified for us. He, he said, this is who I am. I am the resurrection. This is what I do. I bring life. And, and so he's given clarity to her. This, this is the fullness of the promise. This can all be yours if you believe in me. If you trust in me, this is what you have. But here's the question. Do you believe it? It's such a simple question, but, but it changes everything for Martha and for us. And, and look at what Martha says. Look at her response in verse 27. She simply says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Do you see it? Do you see the clear progression in Martha in her heart? Martha goes in the beginning in verse, 20, in verse 22, she said, I know. And then in verse 24, she confesses, I know again. But then in verse 27, she moves from I know to I believe. This is a radical transformation for Martha. Remember, all of this is up in her head. She knows the words. She knows what to say. She knows how to answer things. But it hasn't gone from her head to her heart until this moment. Martha begins for the first time to believe, to trust in this promised one who would come, this promised Christ, this Messiah who was given to us in the Old Testament. Moses called him the line of the tribe of Judah. David pictured him as the chief cornerstone. Isaiah saw him as the prince of peace. Jeremiah told of a righteous branch. Daniel pronounced him the son of man, right? This is what was told to her. And now he's here. This savior who was promised is right in front of Martha with a pressing question. Do you believe this? How she answers and how we answer change everything. The pressing question, do you believe? And what amazes me the most about Martha's answer here is not necessarily what she says, but it's who Martha is. You learn a lot about Martha in the, in the New Testament because Martha was close to Jesus. She was, she was around Jesus a lot. And so Martha shows up in Luke chapter 10. And maybe you've heard the story before where Jesus was coming in from a day of, of long uh, helping people in, in the villages around. And, and he's exhausted. He's tired. And, and so he wants to rest. And Martha invites Jesus over to her house. And Martha says, you know, we, we got to get things ready. We, we got to, Jesus is coming over to our house. If Jesus was going to your house, you, you would want to make sure everything looks good and is nice. And, and so Martha's trying to make everything perfect. She starts panicking. She wants to clean and cook and do all these things and make it all wonderful and make all the preparations. But as she's doing it, she's starting to get frustrated. She's getting frustrated because her sister Mary is in the other room just hanging out with Jesus sitting at his feet, listening to Jesus talk and, and praying and doing these things with Jesus. And, and Martha's in the back room doing all the work. 
And so she's getting furious and angry, and now her anger from her, or to her sister Mary is moved to Jesus, and so she goes to confront Jesus. Why aren't you doing something about this? What are you doing letting my sister do nothing? And I love what Jesus says to Martha in this moment of outrage from Martha. Tenderly and, and graciously, he addresses Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus' voice is tender and compassionate, but truthful towards Martha. To say, Martha, you're, you're doing all these wonderful things, trying to make this just the perfect experience for me and the disciples, but listen, you're missing the point. The whole point is not that you would work, 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 work so you can make me proud of you, Martha. The whole point is that you would believe, that you would simply sit and rest and trust me. And so he says to her, the greater portion is me. The greater portion is not what you can provide and what you can do and what you can work for and you can show all the things that you've done. The greater portion is that you can simply sit and receive me. And so now when you fast forward to John 11 and you see Martha in that context, you see a woman who struggled with, I got to work for God, I got to work for God, I got to work for God, I got to prove myself. And now Martha for the first time is saying, I believe. I trust. I'm resting in you, Jesus. Because before that, it was all about all the things that she could do, all the things she could prove, whatever she could bring to the table. And listen, some of us today, as we are here this morning, we, we are working so hard to try to prove ourselves to God that you, you haven't slowed down long enough to just believe. I find it fascinating that Jesus' question to Martha after this incredible moment where he shares with her one of the most powerful statements ever said in history, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus doesn't say, can you get your life together? Can you start living for me? Can you start fixing all the problems in your life? Jesus' question to her is, do you believe this? And what Jesus is saying is the gospel doesn't start with you and your efforts and your works and all the things that you can improve in your life. The gospel starts with this very simple question, do you trust me? Do you trust me with your whole life? Do you trust me with your past sin? Do you trust me with your present sin? Do you trust me with your future sin? Do you trust me with all your suffering and pain and worry? Do you trust me with everything you've experienced? Do you believe this? And what he says is, what he's saying to her is, if you believe this, all that I've promised you, all that I've done for you is yours. And so it's the same question for us today. And as we're here on Easter Sunday, I know there's folks that maybe you haven't been in church a while, or maybe you've never been in church. And and this might be uh, just a great time for you to celebrate and be with family. And we're glad you're here. But I got to let you know before you leave, Jesus' question is for all of us. Do you believe this? Because so many of us have it backwards. 
So many of us have been holding off a relationship with God because we feel like we're not ready to do all the things we think we're supposed to do. And Jesus' question to you is not that. His question to you is, will you put your trust in me? And when you put your trust in me, I am the one who has the power to change you. I am the one that can renew and revive your whole life from death to life. Do you believe this? That's his question. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you, you are the power. You are the, the strength that we need. You are the third member of the Trinity who comes to inhabit us so that we can do what you've called us to do. And so, God, even the gift of faith, even the gift of the life we live for you is, is not on our own merit. It's for you that we live, but it's by you that we live. It's in your power, it's in your grace, it's in your mercy, it's all you. And so God, we pray today that you would do that work in us, whether we're people who already believe in you or whether we're people struggling with faith. God, may you revive us by your spirit. Give give us newness of life where there's death. Give us newness of hope where there's despair. That we may love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up.